Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. episode of Still Unbelievable, your regular hosts, Matthew and Andrew, and we are doing another 10 questions for atheists. This time we've got a guest with us. Those of you who listen to the Skeptics and Seekers podcast will be familiar with his voice. It is the lovely Brian, and for one night only, he is here on the Still Unbelievable stage. Welcome, Brian. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This is overdue, and I genuinely hope it's not just for one night only. Uh, but let's make the most of it while we can. Thank you for joining us. So shall we jump straight into it and we'll get straight on to the questions. A little bit of background on the questions first. There'll be a link to the original YouTube video in the show notes. These come from a YouTube video by a gentleman by the name of Gunnar Percher. I don't know if that's an alias or not. If you go on and look at the YouTube channel, you notice that this video is around about 10 years old, possibly 11 years old. However, the questions are still questions that we answered today. And to give you a little bit of forewarning, question 10 is pretty much a rerun of question 10 of the 10 questions that Andrew and I did from Braxton Hunter not very long ago. So that gives you a clue as to sometimes age doesn't actually change the question. So we'll get straight into the questions. So question one from our gentleman. Question number one. If there is no God, why is there anything at all? This is another angle on uh, where did the universe come from without a creator. If you want to say, well, the Big Bang, great. I go for Big Bang. But God let the fuse. God set it all in motion. Where did your Big Bang come from? Has anything ever been observed to uh, happen without a cause? Okay. By the way, don't bother with the where did God come from argument. God, by definition, is self-existent and pre-existed this universe. In other words, when, when God created the universe, he created time along with it. There was no before or after at that point. So that argument just doesn't do any good. So there's a lot packed into this question. Shall we just pick the first bit first about... Where did all the stuff come from? This is not a new question. This, que- well, it's not even an old question. This is a question that we still get asked quite a lot. Do either of you two want to jump in on that one? I'd be happy to start. I, I actually wanted to say that I think this is a good question if you leave out the first clause, which is if there is no God. I think the question of why or how is there anything at all is actually a very interesting question. And it's something that I think you know people should ponder and research and talk about and discuss. I just find the framing of begging the question that God somehow has something to say about this before we even get into the discussion. That seems a little bit, um, uh, you know, a little bit out of line as far as I'm concerned. I, I agree. And your thoughts? I'm going to ask the listeners to reflect on something that I've asked in the past here. If we had a nothing detector, what would the nothing detector be made of? And where would we put it? Here's why the question is important. It is not obvious 
that there can be something that is nothing. So I'm not suggesting in this case the something that is nothing. I'm not suggesting a nothing that has any properties. I'm using nothing in the usual sense. In the there was nothing and it has no properties, it has no existence, there was nothing. It is not at all obvious that the thing that we experience as something, the universe with time and space and matter, has a natural logical opposite that is nothing. It's not at all obvious that there can be a logical opposite to something. And so while we can phrase the question, it is not necessarily true that just because we can phrase the question means that the question has any sense at all. So some of you know that Matthew and I are computer geeks. Brian has some computer experience as well. If I said to you, I want you to think over the next 24 hours and tell me what color you want your database. Those of you who are computer literate would go, right, but databases don't have colors. But we can phrase the question. To ask where something came from may be as useless as asking what color you want your database. It may have no meaning at all. Now, our universe, as far as we can tell in our local sense, had uh, what we think of as a beginning, the Big Bang. But concyclic cosmic, uh, cosmology, that's uh, Sir Robert Penrose's uh, view of recurring universes, is one model that says maybe there was never a nothing, but it's by no means the only model that suggests that the universe may go on uh, in terms of expansion and contraction without end into the past. Whether that continues into the future is a big and open question, and I invite you to head over to our sister podcast, Persinium, and look for our episode with Skydive Phil, Phil Hopper. Phil is the official recorder for the Royal uh, Astronomical Society. There are several models of cyclic cosmology. And while those models are under debate, it may very well be that something has no logical opposite that is nothing. And simply asking the question does not mean that we're educated on the responses. To get started on those responses, I urge you to go and listen to that specific podcast. It'll get you started, but it won't be the end of your journey. No, I want to echo that. That is a great episode to listen to. And it's great because you do hear some of the ideas and some of the options that there are available. The Big Bang isn't the only option. Disbelieving in God doesn't automatically mean that the Big Bang becomes your only choice for how the universe came into existence. That is an absolute uh, valid position. There are multiple options. And as Brian said, this is absolutely a question that is interesting. It is absolutely a question that we should ask and curious minds want to know. The good part isn't relevant to the interest in where did all the stuff that makes our universe come from? Did it have an actual beginning or is it just reconstituted from something that was before it? These are all really interesting questions. And the ideas about how our universe came to be in the way that it is, whether it was by Big Bang or whether it came from a singularity or whether it was a cosmic bounce or whatever the various other options are. These are questions that bright and intelligent minds are really trying to answer. And we should all be interested in where this answer comes from because it's fascinating. I don't see why we need to have a God to explain it, you know, Coming, saying that it, we don't know, therefore God, which kind of sounds like where this question is. I know the guy didn't say that specifically, but there are questions that start with the very same 
first few words that he started with, which is, if there is no God, why do we exist at all? And that's put, literally putting the cart before the horse. That is literally presupposing God and presupposing that God is the cause of everything before we've even got to solving the problem of what was our universe before it was in the state that it is in now. We haven't answered that question. We need to get back to that before we can start positing what it was that made it go in the way that it is. So saying that it needs a God to do it is actually jumping several questions because there's information that we don't have that we that leads to whether or not the question there is of a God. So I think the assumption here is, is pretty poor. And it's the Christian here that's making the mistake, not the disbeliever. Matthew, I made one mistake a moment ago. I just want to clear it up because some people have heard this before. I asked people to consider a nothing detector. I asked them to consider what it would be made of and where it would be placed. There's a third key to this thought experiment that is essential in order for proper reflection. And that is, what would it detect, right? If you had a nothing detector, what would it be made of? Where would you place it? And what would it detect? The point is that it is it is not at all obvious that you could detect nothing. Right? There, no. there must be something in order to have a detector. And that thought experiment will help us sort of properly think about what nothing might be. It, mm. may, it may be that there is no logical opposite from something. I think Sean Carroll on his Mindscape podcast has a good episode dedicated to this very topic. I would definitely point people there if you want to get some uh, expert opinion on this topic rather than just uh, what we have to say. Uh, but one final thought before we move on is that I think the obvious answer to what color is your database is lavender. Beige, actually. <laughs> but I guess oh. lavender works. Does is it come with all lavender as well? Lavender databases. I, 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 it's got to be... Um, it's like a, a new non-relational uh, NoSQL database. It's a lavender database. I see. I mean, it's those pa those pastel colors are common in Easter, so it's possible I just have an Easter hangover. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, are we done with one? Because it seems like there are some other elements to. There are consider. other elements to it. I was going to get to it because he okay. he says this wonderful phrase. Don't bother with the "where did God come from" argument. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have to go there because there's, there's, there's something really amusing I find about this question because clearly God in this context, by definition, is everlasting, is the source of everything. God can't come from anything because he, by definition, couldn't be God. For the Christian making this statement, there's an intuition here that God is everywhere. And some people might even say God is all things as well. Well, if you leave God out of it, maybe there is something that answers that question as which didn't something that didn't come from anything, something which always was. And yet maybe the answer to that is energy or maybe the matter that instigated the universe is also equally always there, you know, exists forever. These I'm, I'm not positing that as a firm answer, yeah, but these are possibilities. These are ideas that get thrown about and if you don't like that as an idea if you don't like the idea that energy could be everlasting or that some types of matter could be everlasting if you really don't like that idea but you're really comfortable with the idea of god being everlasting then i just want to ask you the question are you overly tied to an answer say that again 
if you don't like the idea that energy could be everlasting, that certain types of matter can be everlasting, but you are absolutely tied to the idea that God must be everlasting, are you too tied to a specific solution to where the universe came from? Yeah, so I think so. And it seems to me that there's a, a sort of contradiction in saying something like energy cannot be forever, but God can, because one of the very attributes that Christians give God, this sort of creative power, the energy to do something, very much seems to me that Richard Dawkins had this right. The universe is built on successively less complex fundamentals, and our physics are the very small seems to bear this out. So the, the problem then with a God is that God by its nature, whichever God we're talking about, is a necessarily very complex sort of being. And to argue for that complex being as somehow necessary seems to, in my view, go against what we can discover about the universe, which is that it is built on successively less complex components. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think these are great points. I, I think it's it's basically naked special pleading. They have no trouble with the concept of etern eternity. They just don't want to apply it to this answer because it obviates the need for their God. Yeah. I wish I could say things that succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to question two, which is similar in format. It just brings the focus down a little bit. Second question. Where is the evidence that life could have begun without intelligent interference? How can matter existing and moving randomly without any volition, without any will or anything else become what's necessary for life and then become alive. So take a good look at that. Tell me what you think. So guys, what do you think? Shifting the burden. That's my first thought. Okay. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think this betrays a misunderstanding of how we do scientific investigation. Clearly life began because we're here and we have life. <laughs> now that we know that that's a fact, we now go searching for the answers and go searching for the causes. If he has evidence that an intelligence is what created life, then present that evidence. But if you haven't found that yet, then you can't also turn that around and try to prove the negative, whereas life couldn't have begun without intelligence. That's a, that's a burden-proof shift, and mm -hmm. it's also just you know not doing the scientific method of observation, collecting data, uh, hypotheses, etc. And this is something that all three of us have seen by other Christians and by maybe some specific Christians we could very easily name. He's made a claim, life needs intelligence in order to begin. Now it's your job to prove me wrong. If that's what's coming at me, why should I take it seriously? Right. And it's not as if biologists and chemists and physicists haven't gotten together and put a lot of work into this. And one of the uh, strong contenders for how this gets started is abiogenesis. I am not an expert in these fields, and I am not going to attempt to explain abiogenesis to our listeners. Brian, that may be more in your wheelhouse. I don't know. If you really want to take 
an answer to the question seriously. If you're a Christian and what you're hearing us say, those atheists don't have any answers and they're just throwing it back. No, I'm not. I will give you a legitimate thread to pull on right now. Go to Google and start with abiogenesis. The fact that I am not well-versed enough to explain it in one paragraph does not mean that real scientists who investigate this don't have a start at the answer. Mm-hmm. Brian, is that... Yeah, um, I, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That's, I, was, I was going to, to, to rejoin to that. I think this also shows that it's a little bit of an argument from ignorance in that because I don't know how something happens, now I know how something happened. Science and scientists are completely comfortable with saying they don't know when they hit the mm. limit of their knowledge. And we've gone pretty far back in the figuring out for how life started. And just because we haven't cracked that final door and gone to the other side doesn't mean that their pet theory that an intelligence was required is then vindicated. You need to advance a positive argument for intelligence being necessary for life. And to the best of my knowledge, they don't have anything but dusty old books. Very good point. Yeah. Is abiogenesis anything uh, that you've studied in your background in college? It's been some time since I've been in college and, uh, and studied these things. I do have a, a university training in biology. And, you know, really it was at the level of biochemistry because, you know, it was mm. really chemical entities that assembled in certain ways that allowed for the, the, the creation of life. Now that we're doing uh, more research in neuroscience, et cetera, and learning how more about how living things interact uh, from a brain perspective, it's possible that the entire thing is chemical at its base, right? We haven't cracked the final code, but the point being is it looks like it's all chemistry and biology. And we haven't seen any special ingredients from the ether needing to be mixed in to make these things possible. Right. Our proteins are made up of, what, something like 20 amino acids? I mean, we're not talking about a tremendous number of amino acids that get our proteins started. I think it's 23, but you're right. See, there's me showing off a little bit right there. See, well, I was was throwing it to you. I'm not going to make any definite claims here, uh, except that lavender is a smell and not a color. Watch me be wrong. I could be wrong in a while. (laughs) It won't get pointed out by one of us. So now Um, now I'm just going to go pontificating about biology and take us all far afield, if that's the case. I would love for Christians to pontificate on their God's biology. Whatever, like, I I realize they might claim that that God has a physical body, but he does have some sort of sophistication, right? He's, he's something, even if he's supernatural. I, I would love to see some pontification on what, on what that actually yeah, is. That, that, right? that, would be a, that would be novel, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Matthew, where does that put us into? There's more hidden actually within this question than would seem and with the, the short shrift that we've given it, certainly the short shrift that I gave it earlier. And that is the whole question around what is life and what constitutes the start of life. If we take an individual human being and analyze all of the individual molecules that makes up that individual human being, there is not a single molecule that we will point at and say that molecule is alive. But we assemble them together in the way to make a human being and voila, we have a human being who is alive a collection of all these molecules yeah and we could remove a significant number of those molecules say a leg's worth or an arm's worth and that human being is still alive and the bit that we've removed would be not alive but it was part of that life when it was connected Mm. so there's a whole definitional thing around life 
which is a problem here. You know, there's a whole controversy over the question, is a virus alive? Some people will say by certain definitions, yes, a virus is alive. And there'll be other people who say, no, there's no criteria under which a virus is life. So there are problems around the edges of the definition of life and where we categorise what is life and what, what isn't life. So this question may sound like it's coming from a, a simple thing and trying to challenge a, a simple concept. But the actual definitions behind this question are very problematic. Even the mm. definition of intelligent in this question is also problematic. What do we define as intelligent? Is a newly born human intelligent? Is a dog intelligent? Are mice intelligent? Now, where does intelligence begin? Now, these are all difficult concepts. And because they're difficult and really, really fuzzy around the edges, this question makes less and less sense the deeper you dig into the definitions of what's being asked. Those are really great points. I, I think it shows that there's nuance, it's complex, there's room for disagreement, uh, but you know, clearly that's what I think uh, makes a lot of Christians get squeamish when they don't have those answers. They need to punt to their God as the reason why uh, this thing that they can't otherwise explain exists. Yeah, and I think asking these questions in such a blinkered and black and white way actually does disservice to the genuinely interesting science that actually goes behind finding out some of these answers. And why, uh, so we've seen the goalpost moved pretty regularly uh, throughout the, the course of our history of human science. We used to think that God was hidden somewhere beyond the very big, right? So he's, he's somewhere up in the sky or the, or the devil is somewhere down in the earth, so somewhere uh, hidden in the very, very big. And now we just no longer think that. We don't use the Hubble or the James Webb Telescope or Arecibo Observatory, uh, may it rest in peace, right? We don't use these things and expect if we look far enough beyond the blue that we're going to see a gray-bearded man holding a staff and, uh, and reading his book to figure out who are the naughty and the nice. Right? We don't expect to find God in the very big. And as far as I can tell, it's falling out of favor to think that we will find God in the very small, except in this way that there, there must have been something, some magic change in the way humans are assembled versus other animals. And that is how Christians smuggle in a soul, right? So there's, there's something special about us. But I have yet to see someone answer with any sort of clarity what that something is. What is the mechanism by which the Christian God did his work? And until that can be unraveled, until someone can say, this is the mechanism that God used to make us special, we are just relying on special pleading. Yeah. I concur. Okay. Well, that was too easy. <laughs> it was, well, <laughs> too question easy. three helps to unpack it a little bit more. So we're diving mm. deeper into the world of evolution. So question three. Question three. How can evolution explain features of irreducible complexity apart from intelligent intervention? And what I'm talking about is features that we see in creatures today, such as wings, wings on birds, Birds supposedly evolved from reptiles, and those wings 
before this evolution were legs, forelimbs, arms, whatever you might want to call that. You need to be able to say and demonstrate that each stage that was necessary in their steps of evolving these wings was a benefit to that creature all along the way. In other words, this creature whose legs began to be wings uh, would have become less worthwhile as legs. How is he more survivable than the creature who has experienced no change and uh, has perfectly good legs? So let's see that. Now I'm going to put my hand up straight away to this one because this question specifically in the way that it's phrased and we're going to pick out some of the problems with the way that it's phrased this question was one of my blockers when i was a young earth creationist and it was one of the blockers to me accepting evolution and it was understanding the nuance and the detail of what is utterly wrong with this question was what helped me get out. So if you're a Christian listening to this and this question touches some of your way of thinking, please pay attention to the next couple of minutes. We'll see if we can try and help you to understand what's wrong here. Who wants to go for it? I am looking up a resource. I am going to let the two of you go first. <laughs> Coward. <laughs> well, well done. Well done. <laughs> Before we kick it around, I just wanted to say, I'm not sure if you two are familiar with a YouTuber that's been around for a long time. Is that his handle is Qualia Soup. Are you familiar with him? I may I'm have not. heard the name, but I don't know any of his content. I actually believe he's in the UK, if I'm not, uh, not mistaken. His brother is, uh, is Theremin Trees, who's another pretty famous YouTuber. But he's, he's got an entire video dedicated to debunking irreducible complexity, and it's, it's fantastic. I would point the audience and everybody to go check that out because he really does a good job of tackling both specific examples that have been given and also the concept in general. Good. Thank you for that, Brian. I'll see if I can find that. Just in the last couple of weeks, I read an article about a small vertebrate. It wasn't a trilobite, but it's something at that sort of scale of biology, something that at that level of sophistication of life. And they identified a single gene in this organism that if modified causes its fins and flippers to change to stubs for arms and legs. When you think about this question, interference to create the forms that we have, as it turns out, very, very small changes in biology can make enormous differences in form. Mm -hmm. Enormous differences in form. The FOXP2 gene is the gene that is responsible for giving our palates the shape that it takes so that we can produce human speech. And we can test this. We take that specific gene and we put that gene in mice. And the inclusion of that one gene actually changes the shape of the palate of the mouse. It changes the way they vocalize. Now, it doesn't give them speech. I'm not, not suggesting that uh, the Warnicke and Brokaw areas of the brain are somehow modified uh, so that now, now, they're, now they're capable of human speech. But it does change their capacity for vocalization. It does change the physical shape of their mouth. These very small changes 
make enormous change in form. And so we can say with great certainty, because when the genes are there, we have the thing that we think has resulted in the form that we see. And when we take these genes out, we don't have that form. In other words, we can establish a causal link. And it is genes that do this work. It is genes that create the forms that we have. And as far as I can tell, and Brian, correct me on all of this where I go wrong. But as far as I can tell, in terms of the form we have, there is no need to appeal to anything outside the organism's genome in terms of its form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. I mean, clearly, clearly not everything that gets passed on by reproducing organisms is necessary for life, would cause for the organism to not exist if it didn't exist. Um, you know, look, look at the human appendix. We still get genes coding for appendix, uh, for us to have appendices, but mm-hmm. we haven't needed an appendix in a long, long time. So not everything that shows up morphologically in an organism uh, is necessarily linked to survivability in the genome. So things come along for the ride. Things uh, can exist beyond their, their necessary uh, nature. Things can become more important downstream. Things become important as they're combined with other things. Uh, the Venus flytrap, for one, is a very interesting organism where both the speed that he closes as well as the stickiness of his insides, you could have you know, different expressions of the, both the speed of the closing and the stickiness and various combinations maximize the ability for it to catch prey. And you can have ones that are very fast but not very sticky or ones that are the opposite. Uh, so it's, again, it's not as simple as, oh my God, this thing is irreducibly complex, therefore it couldn't have been passed on genetically. It's just, again, it just betrays an ignorance of what we know in evolutionary biology. One of the organs that we have is the eye. How did we develop the eye? Some of our listeners will be familiar with iguanas, right? So so iguanas have a a very interesting eye-like organ on the tops of their heads, but they don't see with it in the sense that they can look at color or even movement. Iguanas have this light sensing patch on the tops of their heads. And that ability, just those receptors for light, gave them a survival advantage because uh, sometimes they're preyed on by animals from the air. And you, you can actually try this in a pet store. Find an iguana, wave your hand over its head. It will detect the change in light And that change in light will be enough to cause the iguana to try to hide. In other words, just the detection of a shadow can be enough to indicate a threatening species or to indicate that you're hidden. And so it is not the case that our eyes are uh, somehow came into full evolution at a point in time. And it is the case that very subtle things like just a photosensitive receptor can confer a survival advantage. And so eyes, as a for instance, are not irreducibly complex. It's also not the case that just because we cannot track the evolution of some organ doesn't mean that the organ didn't have evolution. So that's also the wrong kind of reasoning. And I'll leave it there because I've now exhausted everything I know about this subject. And um, no, those are great. Those are great, great examples. 
There are. And I'd like to pick up on some of the things that he says about bird wings in this. But before I get to that, there's a squirrel, a type of squirrel that is commonly referred to as the flying squirrel. And it's called that because it's got an extended patch of skin which stretches between its forelimbs and its rear limbs and it stretches out. Now, arguably, this patch of skin means that the squirrel is slightly slower running on the ground versus squirrels which don't have this skin stretched between its forelimbs. It can probably stretch its legs out further because it hasn't got this little hindrance. So it's possibly slower running on the ground if it's trying to either chase something or run away from something. However, put this same squirrel up in a tree, and squirrels are want to climb trees for various reasons. This squirrel can use that stretch of skin to glide from one tree to another tree. So if it's caught up in a tree, either by a bird or a snake or another kind of predator that's up in the tree with it, its ability to get a significant distance away from that predator is really quite superior to any squirrel that doesn't have that stretch of skin because if it tries to jump from the tree it can jump less of a distance it can jump a shorter distance away because the flying squirrel which doesn't technically fly it glides or falls with grace if you want to phrase it a different way so this squirrel has got fewer options the squirrel without the stretch of skin has got fewer options when trying to get away so being slightly faster on the ground might not be the advantage that you would imagine it is. So birds didn't evolve from reptiles. Birds and reptiles evolved from dinosaurs that pre-existed them. So there's a technicality to correct there. And wings didn't evolve from legs. Wings came from forearms. And there is a little bit of learning, a little bit of speculation about the origin of wings. But what we are confident about is that before wings, there were feathers. And we've ha- we have found proto-feathers in fossils, so animals which didn't fly but have feathers. And we have animals around today, like the emu. They are flightless, but they have feathers. So feathers aren't necessarily just there for flying. You know, peacocks have got feathers which are utterly useless for flying, <laughs> but they are absolutely awesome for putting on a great display and for attracting attention for a mate. So feathers have multiple uses. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that feathers first came up to be something that was light but colourful, something that made the body look bigger than it really was, something that the animal could use either to make itself look larger and more aggressive to something that might want to eat it or to make it look more impressive and beautiful to something that it might want to mate with. Or they could even be camouflage there are multiple uses that feathers can be put to and their lightness and their air catchiness could then have found that they enabled an an animal which had them to be slightly lighter in the air to jump slightly further like that stretch of skin i mentioned in the flying squirrel also insulation so i've got that bit insulation is another benefit that feathers give to the animal that's wearing it So there are multiple uses for feathers beyond flying. So it is not beyond the realms of possibility that feathers evolved first for various uses. And eventually there was an animal which found that actually it could use these feathers for something else. And that is to help it to glide, to get away from a predator, or even maybe 
to glide down onto a prey that it wanted. And then the flying would have come later. So there is an example of where a feather or an early wing or a limb that was not fully a limb and not fully a wing either could actually give a benefit to the animal before it was one or the other. So there's an example to, to answer the specific question that's asked here. Are we ready for four? Yes. Yeah, let's have four. Four is moving on in evolution. Question four. How can the evolutionary model be true since the fossil record clearly shows most major groups emerging at the same time? I'd like you to Google Cambrian explosion and see what I'm talking about there. Stephen Jay Gould, who was a foremost proponent of evolution for years and years, now deceased, said that the dirty little secret of evolutionists was that the fossil record does not show gradual change. He's right. It doesn't. And yet, we have been told for, well, since Darwin, that gradual change is what happened. Very small steps, they're not in the fossil record. Darwinism and the evolutionary model is now becoming like the old story of the emperor's new clothes. People fear uh, to publicly question it, but in private they do. And many of them have gone forward, gone ahead and, and stepped out and put their names on um, lists of people who publicly declare that the Darwinian model does not account for what we see in nature today. So... Um, don't bother with telling me that all of those people are kooks. You know, we're talking to PhD level scientists from you name it, universities and such. Um, and, you know, deal with arguments. Don't deal with uh, your opinions on people's uh, personalities and, and uh, personal worth. Question four is moving on the question of evolution. He's gone to some specifics again, some specifics that need to be addressed and some factual queries that need to be challenged. I think it's what's becoming clear is that this this gentleman who's put forward these questions has a lot of gaps in his knowledge about evolutionary theory and its history and where things are now and where they've been. Because these are all, you know, God of the gaps argument from ignorance ignorance type questions it's, you know something that he thinks is a fact can't be explained in some way that he can understand so therefore there must be some kind of a deity that can paste over this level of non-knowledge and it's it's just it, it's becoming clear that he set up a false dichotomy whereas evolutionary theory must have everything hammered out to his satisfaction or else god must exist and it's just it's a it's an improper framing and it's it, it just betrays the fact that he, he clearly does not want to dig into the answers and the rebuttals and the discussions that take place on these topics. I mean, you know, Steve, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, isn't some you know, young earth creationist or anything like that. Right. There's actually a fair amount of discussion in the scientific community about his punctuated equilibrium theory and how it can cohere with Darwinian evolution and how it fits into the modern understanding of evolutionary theory. So I, I, I just, I would reject the fact that this blatant misstatement that clearly the record shows all these major groups appearing at the same time. It's just, I think it's a misstatement of the facts and a misunderstanding of where we think the theory is right now. When I hear this, what I think he's appealing to 
when he says a lot of these groups, uh, a lot of our species occurred around the same time, I think he's referring to the Cambrian explosion, what's commonly called the Cambrian explosion. This is a common claim for Christians, right? How do you explain this? It all happened during the Cambrian explosion. I'd like to point out first that the, the Cambrian period was 541 million years ago to 485 million years ago, near enough. That's, uh, that's 56, let me say that again, it's 56 million years. So while it may be the case that we can argue for rapid, rapid speciation at some point in the past, the, the Cambrian explosion, rapid in this sense is a word that we've got to be very careful not to equivocate on. Uh, rapid, if you want to appeal to the Cambrian explosion, is still rapid along evolutionary timescales. We're still talking about 56 million years. And so in some sense, I think Christians think about something like uh, the earth being created in six days, right? And, and you, you know, you've got uh, the plants and the animals and humans and, and, and space and time and the sun and the moon and all that. Okay, fine. Let's not confuse human lifespan and biblical periods with the Cambrian explosion. We're still talking about 56 million years. Yeah, ex exactly. You know, equivocating on rapid is definitely a trap you can fall into. And it, it certainly begs the question as, you know, why couldn't an all-powerful deity like Yahweh create the universe in, in faster than seven days? <laughs> that's, that's not very <laughs> right. for an omnipotent being, is it? What took him so long? And, and, and by the way, I want to know why he needed to rest. Okay, it's, it's, it's complete non sequitur. But it has always bothered me. Why, why, you know, I, I, man, creating that earth thing, that was, you know, it took six whole days. Now I'm really tired. I mean, come on. Bring me, can, bring me can, a beer. I got to rest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I am not a biologist. I'm not really qualified to talk about these things in any meaningful way, except to say, that if you want to appeal to the Cambrian explosion as a problem for evolution, we are talking about evolutionary timescales when you say Cambrian. You're not getting started if you say, well, hell, a lot of stuff happened back there in the Cambrian, but yeah, a lot of stuff happened in that whole 56 million years. <laughs> yeah. That should not surprise you that a lot yeah. of stuff happened in 56 million years. Yep. Exactly. And the other thing that I think is a little disingenuous is, is he paints it as if the Cambrian explosion is some sort of dirty little secret that's only whispered about at cocktail <laughs> parties when no one's paying attention. Right, right. It, 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 is, it, is, it is plain as day out there for anyone to examine all the details of. If you just go right. to Wikipedia, it'll point you to tendrils worth of scientific analyses and varying expert, various experts weighing in on the working models of what might have happened them, what might have been the causes, and what the current areas of investigation are. So, you know, right. it's not some sort of don't get, don't let this cat out of the bag, or else you'll become a Christian tomorrow. It's it's just, it's disingenuous. Right. The the Cambrian explosion and the Piltdown Man are not going down in history <laughs> together. They're Absolutely. not going down. In history <laughs> so, do I think that evolution happens? more quickly at some points than others? Hell, I don't know, Brian, does it? But if it does, it doesn't imply an intelligence uh, changing the gearing of the universe, as far as I can tell. 
Uh, Brian, does evolution have some punctuation to it? Does it speed up and slow down? Do we know? In a broad sense, absolutely it does, right? But again, it, it betrays the, the method of, of analyzing it, right? We're, we're taking the data and then trying to craft working models that, that uh, fit to all the data and then seeing if we can find anything that disconfirms it, right? So if it, if it turns out that evolution goes faster than they thought, you know, hundreds of years ago, then that's where we'll land as long as it fits with the data and doesn't have anything that disconfirms it. But, you know, this particular example that's proffered here doesn't do anything to, to destroy all of evolutionary theory as we've gotten to now. On the um, Stephen Jay Gould quotes, I struggled to find that quote as given in the video, and I struggled to find a context for what he might have said that was like that. So I wasn't able to find anything specific. That. So I suspect that the quote that he's given isn't a verbatim quote and is just ever so slightly garbled. So I was unable to uh, to specifically identify when and where Stephen Jagold might have said something approximating what was claimed or what is attributed to him. So I couldn't address that specific point, uh, not directly anyway. So if listeners, if you know a little bit more about the quote from Stephen J. Gould and what the context of that exact quote might be, reasonpress at gmail.com, I would really love to hear it. But on the broader subject of the fossil record not showing gradual change, again, this is one of those nitty gritties where the technicalities might be right but the broader picture is utterly wrong the analogy that i use to show that is show me the day this is a challenge show me the day at which a child becomes an adolescent and show me the hour at which that adolescent becomes an adult it's a dumb question it just doesn't work you can't nail down that pinpoint on any single individual's uh, growth. That's just not a practical question to ask. So this is similar here to trying to identify gradual change in the fossil record, because if you had a whole group of animals fossilized together whole, I mean, that tends not to happen. You get bits and pieces. You don't get the whole group and you don't get the whole group wholly fossilized. But let's imagine that you do. There will be differences between each of the individuals in that group, just like we have differences in individuals in a group alive. So there'll be differences between individuals in the fossil record. How do you know from all those differences? What difference is just natural difference through just the, the change that you get within a family group? And what is the difference that is going to become something much bigger and something more important that will lead it to another species at later. You can't at that kind of tiny level. You don't know until you see the next ancestor, you know, thousands or millions of years later where there's something completely different and then you can do the pair. So it goes the same way. You, I don't know when an adolescent has become an adult until they've already been an adult for a number of months or, or maybe even years. You have to wait for it to have happened before you can identify the difference. The fact that the fossil record is incomplete is something that we should expect. Uh, fossilization is a rare occurrence. To have a fossil record that is not entirely easy to read is something that we should expect. Yep. Just depending 
on the fossil record. It's the wrong way to go about scientific investigation. So when we talk about speciation and the facts that forms evolve and, and all of that sort of thing, we are not simply relying on the fossil record. That is not all that we have to go on. And if that is all you have to go on as a rebuttal, it is a rebuttal out of absolute ignorance about the evidence for uh, transitional forms, uh, what happens as, uh, as evolution continues. So we have natural selection, genetic drift, and mutation. Those three things are quite well studied. Brian, stop me when I misstep here because you've got, it, you've got uh, real world education that I don't have. This change in allele frequency over time Evolution is not something that we're guessing at. <laughs> and we're not using the, we're not just using uh, the fossil record or lack of fossil evidence to come up with the conclusion that evolution is the best explanation for the facts that we see in the world around us. So evolution is two things. And we need to be very careful about which we're talking about when someone uses the word evolution. Evolution is a body of facts that we observe. Changing allele frequency over time, mutation, natural selection, genetic drift. Those are facts that we observe. Then there is evolutionary theory that we are using to try to explain those facts. Now, you can say perfectly, well, I don't, I don't believe in evolution. Okay, fine. First of all, you're letting yourself out of rational conversation. But to say that you don't believe in the theory of evolution is one thing. <laughs> to say, I don't believe in the facts of evolution is something else in entirely more ridiculous. You're entitled to your opinion. You're not entitled to a separate version of facts. Brian, I probably just stomped on modern biology and so... Uh, <laughs> My apologies. No, that, Please that, correct me. That was wrong. that was extremely well stated. I think equivocation fallacies abound in these types of conversations, and the fact of evolution versus the working scientific model theory of evolution get get switched uh, inappropriately uh, in these conversations. And I think that's either because they don't know better, or because they're deliberately trying to trip up atheists with these YouTube questions. Yeah, so just a little bit more tidying up and tying your bows, I'd like to add on to what you guys have said. Back onto the Cambrian explosion, the, the guys have already said, we're talking geological time here. So explosion is really not the right word. And as Andrew said, fossils are a rare thing. Fossils happen extremely rarely. I think it's less than 1% of animals that existed end up fossilised. Now, whole families, whole groups, probably whole species, have probably lived and died without ever being fossilized. And so at some point you're going to see the first thing. And the reason why we're seeing such an abundance of creatures in the Cambrian explosion is usually attributed to their being hard body components. Because soft bodied animals that existed in the seas and the oceans at that time, when they died, they had just become food for other creatures. It's when the hard bodies come along, the bits that can't be eaten. So that's why we see what looks, what appears to be fully formed animals suddenly appearing 
uh, in the fossil record. Yeah, it's because they've now got the components for that. But there are, but if you, but as Andrew said earlier, we've got a scan, we've got a span of tens of millions of years between the beginning and the end of the Cambrian explosion. And you can see a variation in the creatures between the beginning of the Cambrian explosion and the end of the Cambrian explosion. So in that little encapsulation of time that is being referred to as Cambrian explosion, we have got evidence of evolution within just that little bit. So there's that one. And the other one which I really want to challenge directly is this bit about people fearing to publicly question evolution, but in private they do. I'm just going to call nonsense on that. The people that uh, question it in private are also those who question it in public, and they are few in number. So let's just go beyond this kind of thing about, oh, people are afraid to question it. No, they're not. There's plenty of people who are questioning it vocally. They're just wrong. Shall we move on? Yes, we've got a nice, interesting transition coming up. Ah, yes. The the other favourite one for questions to atheists. So, question five. This is question five. If there is no objective standard of right or wrong, which was furnished by the Creator, how can anything be wrong? If man is the result of mere chance, a combination of atoms that just happened, uh, then why is there any value in life whatsoever? On what objective truth do you base your morality, if any? What can you point to that says why murdering babies is any less desirable way to increase food supply than harvesting fruit from trees? Don't try diverting this argument by asking what makes my religion the right one. That's a side debate. We'll get to that later. Right. Okay. So that's question five, chaps. I'm so glad that we've got the audio from the video to insert here because I don't think I'd be able to read through this question and keep a straight <laughs> face. <laughs> Any, anybody, anybody with a newborn that won't stop crying in the middle of the night might actually agree with them. <laughs> yeah, although I must say I have got one. She's not quite newborn anymore. But I can say that I never threatened to peel her like a banana, you know, as punishment, right? <laughs> um, what a what a very what a very bizarre and emotionally charged uh, sort of question. Sorry, Matthew, you cut all of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to cut it. God, no. <laughs> But I, let's, let's be honest, at least he's engaging with atheists at, at the level of atheists and we've got in there eating babies. Come on, let's at least give the guy a high five for that one. Yes, so, definitely. This is actually a pretty easy one, though, isn't it? Um, because this is this is just the old home, what do you base your ethics? And, and it's pretty easy. Um, I, I have two replies. The Harvard School of Public Medicine, in conjunction with the... Uh, uh, Harvard School of Psychology, and I don't remember the names of either school, have been involved in a uh, now a years long project to understand what human thriving is. So uh, the reason this came up is because uh, quite often we ask the question psychologically, what does it mean to thrive? 
as, as humans, right? What, what causes us to feel good? And for a long time, that was at odds with our medical science, keeping people well. And researchers decided that it was time to try to bring those disciplines together and quantify what it means to be happy. This has been in the domain of religion for a long time. Uh, go to church, sing some songs, say some, say some prayers, read some books, have a sense of community, and, and that's where we get our well-being. But as it turns out, we can, and this project at Harvard has quantified what it means to thrive. And it's not very surprising. Uh, first of all, the organism does need to be physically well, right? When, when we feel good, we feel good. Sorry, that sounds like a tautology. When we feel physically, when we feel physically well, we are mentally more capable. But there are some more important aspects. Self-guidedness, our ability to make our own decisions is essential to uh, human thriving. And we can use that as a metric. The, the more free will someone has in the colloquial sense, the more self-guidedness they can have, the happier they are. The more connected they are to their community, the happier they are. And as it turns out, this one has another layer of complexity. If I have friends that don't know each other, that support me, I feel less supported than if my friends do know each other and they not only support each other, but they support me as well. In other words, the closer my community is, the more supported I feel. And that is true in or out of church. It happens in our work environments. It happens in our family and extended social circles. So we do actually know what it means to thrive as human beings. And it's not the domain of religion. But they don't eat their babies. Oh, well, they should. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> shall, we, um, yeah, shall we address the baby one? Because it's really quite simple. An animal that eats its own offspring is an animal that's going to reduce its reproductive ability. It's really... <laughs> that simple it's next generation is going to be fewer in number and you would not expect that animal to last for very long i know there are some exceptions where there are species i'm doing this off the top of my head which will occasionally i think either consume or just get rid of some of the babies just so that it can reduce the number that has to look after and sometimes that will it will drop that down to just one. And I think that's a specific tactical advantage because it's better for one to survive than none to survive. So there are circumstance, individual circumstances where that kind of thing, I think, does happen. But on a broader scale where you've got groups, that tends not to happen because you've got shared looking after of the children. And that's why humans have got to the numbers that they have and the animals that will get rid of some of their offspring so they can reduce the number that it has to look for, haven't expanded to the numbers that humans have. So that's why you don't murder your babies as a food source, because you want your population to grow. 
it's just straight, objective, measurable fact. You don't need a god to work that out. Right, you wouldn't be here if you did, right? Yeah. There's another fly in this ointment. Just saying that a value system is objective doesn't solve the problem. So, uh, Brian, you're an atheist. I'm an atheist. Matthew's an atheist. We all have children. We didn't need the Christian claim of it being objectively wrong not to eat our offspring. So why that's important is if we didn't need that objectivity, what good is the Christian claim that they have an objective truth? But it goes further. Game theory teaches us we can start with some subjective pattern. Chess is an example. Go is an example. Pick, pick any game where there's some competition. You start with some subjective board. Once you agree on what the rules are, you can then start to make objective decisions about what the best moves on that board are. Now, as the games increase in complexity and as the information about your opponent becomes less well known, the rules get harder to determine, or not the rules, but what objective moves are best become harder to assess. But it is not the case that if we start at some subjective point, as long as we agree on what we want the outcome to be, no matter what the subjective starting point is, we can make objective decisions based on those agreements. Absolutely. I'll admit to being a little fatigued on this topic because what we do, we did like an eight chapter series on this on <laughs> Skeptics and Seekers this recently. <laughs> right, right. So, I think they called it so season I'm, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And, right. yeah. <laughs> when David was on, an, was, on a, was on a hiatus, he ended up doing this grandiose series. But um, a couple of uh, my couple of responses quickly to this are, you know, I prefer to go from bottom up rather than top down because mm -hmm. I want to start with the facts that I have and navigate to a good morality from that point rather than starting from a top that may or may not exist and come down from that way. So I start with the fact that we're, you know, we are humans on a planet. We're physical beings. We have psychology. We have to share space. We have to compete for resources. And now what should we do to maximize all of our well-being given these facts of life? And, you know, that's how I navigate to morality. If it's coming from top down from a deity, for one thing, that's not objective. It's subjective if morality is due to the opinions of this deity. It just happens to be one that they want to point to. You know, it would be no different mm -hmm. than if aliens came down and gave us our morale. That would be objective in, in the sense that Christians mean it, but it would be subjective with regards to what the source of that morality is. So I, again, I just I find that this type of objection to atheism is just it's ill formed because it first assumes facts, not in evidence. And it also just betrays what we're actually trying to do, which is get along together on this planet without killing each other. Yeah. And the top down approach is what says it's morally OK, morally acceptable for an invading army to desecrate an entire city, including women, children and animals. Yes. To right. own others as, exactly. as property, etc. And the only way they can get out of that conundrum is to just say, well, it, it doesn't matter. This this God's the boss and whatever yeah. he says goes. And if that's what you're saying, well, that to, to me, that's obedience. That's not morality. Yes, quite. Okay. 
Question six. Question six. Which is the logically defensible position? That matter eternally existed, or else it came into existence all by itself for no reason. And then it arranged itself into extraordinarily complex living systems, including not only mechanisms, but huge amounts of information that's needed for life to function. This being against everything that we've ever observed in science, where things move towards disorder left on their own, as opposed to moving towards more order. Or the other position that an eternal self-existing being, definition of God, infinite intelligence, infinite power, uh, created life and the information systems necessary for life to exist all at once. This is only a problem if you have a preconceived belief that God does not exist. What place do preconceptions have in scientific inquiry? So it's a problem if you preconceive God does not exist, but it's perfectly okay to preconceive that God does exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> What was that about Poison. logically defensible? <laughs> right. Poisoning the well much? The, the, you know, and, and by the way, all the science we've ever seen suggests I'm right. I... <laughs> um, this, 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 this guy needs to have more than answers in Genesis bookmarked on his computer. That's clearly the case here. It's so bizarre. I honestly don't remember as a Christian how I got to there must be a God that is all, all, right? All powerful, all knowing, all loving, all whatever, all present, it's, I, all of the omni attributes. I think there's another problem. Beyond none of us making the claim that matter self-organized, yada, 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 it's, the story is much more complex than that. Too. He's phrased it as if matter has a mind of its own. That's part of the problem. The idea that there is an omni-god that must have done this, when it's pretty clear that hell is not good for any of us, and I'm guessing, though I don't know this cat, he would support that there will be more people in hell than in heaven, would make me question the ethics of that god anyway. And so this omni-god in my view, is a more evil God than he could possibly be a good God. He's going to lose more than he's going to win. And so I would question why there is anything in that case. Why did he press play? He doesn't need us. I think the question is so blind, even from the Christian perspective. Self-organization is not something with a will. And we do not live in an open system in the sense that he's implying. Now, is the universe an open system is a question that needs to be answered. And again, I'll refer you to the proscenium episode on cosmology with Phil Hopper. But our local system, the system that we inhabit here on Earth with the moon as our satellite and the sun pumping energy into this planet necessarily means that even if we are in a globally open system, that energy input is what provides the driver for our system to not tend toward the state of disorder that he is, is claiming is problematic. The reason things work the way they do 
is because while over time, maybe this universe will eventually run out, maybe there will be some way for it to regenerate. Those, that's an open question. But right now, we do not live in a completely open system. We live in a system where energy is coming in and that energy gives us the ability to have the changes that we see in evolution. So it's not the problem that he's claiming. And just for clarity, this is referring to the second law of thermodynamics about disorder eventually winning over order. That's right. Thank you for that. And uh, and what you were referring to earlier was one of the proposals for our universe is that our universe will eventually suffer what's called a heat death, not because it dies by getting too hot, but it dies because the heat dissipates away because everything spreads out and the gaps between everything in the universe gradually get bigger and bigger and bigger and so there is lower and lower energy within the universe and so everything gets cooler and cooler cooler and therefore everything slows down more and more and more and eventually the universe effectively becomes nothing because there's so much space between everything and there's so little heat that there's no energy driving any kind of movement and that will eventually happen but as you said that does not mean that there will not be pockets of high energy, pockets of accumulated energy, pockets of activity. And we are fortunate that we live in one of those pockets. We can only exist because we live in one of those pockets. And this is, yeah, this is the second law of thermodynamics, which is a regular issue that comes up when having these kinds of conversations, usually with young Earth creationists. My reaction to this question was that it's, first of all, it's a false dichotomy because these two particular scenarios aren't necessarily the only ones. And mm. if you look at either of them, the painting of the supposed atheist position is so littered with uncharitable assumptions and ad hominem descriptions of the facts of nature. And uh, you know, it's, it's leading the witness to determine that it is such a ridiculous position. How could you even dream of having it? So, you know, clearly... This isn't someone that's trying to charitably uh, assess the atheist position. But then on the flip side, there, there's apparently a being that solves all those problems by definition. There's no evidence proffered that there is such a being that has these properties and in fact uh, used those properties to create what we have now. It's just an assumption that derives entirely from ignorance. And for some reason, we're supposed to find that more impressive. And that's the one that we need that you know that you know logic would would dictate that this is the position you have to take well i'm sorry but logic to me dictates that, that if you put forward a claim you provide evidence for the claim and you don't define entities into existence so the answer to his question is neither is logical because you've butchered the atheist position and you've improperly pumped up the christian position Ooh, yes thank nice you for said. Yeah, thank you for saying it like that, uh, Brian. It is the, the classic God did it response, but that doesn't actually answer anything. If I turn up at home in a really fancy car, my wife says, oh, that's a really nice car. How did you get it? And if my answer is, oh, Colin Chapman made it for me. That doesn't answer her question. It doesn't answer her question at all. It doesn't tell her how I got the resources to make it, to have it made. It doesn't answer the technicalities of how it was made. And it doesn't answer the technicalities of how I got it here. 
it's it's a non-answer and it certainly doesn't answer the the intent behind the question that was being asked and this is what's happened here with this an imaginary question has been brought up and the answer given is god did it but that's not actually the answer to the question as it's been produced (laughs) very well said what bothers me about this is this again going back to my own creationist days this is probably the kind of answer to the god did it conversation that i would have given so part of me thinks i should give this guy a little bit more charity because he's coming from a position which i once had but when i hear this answer this answer that i myself have given before in the past i get really frustrated by it because there is so little integrity in the question and now I understand why people used to get frustrated with me when I used to try and go on a creationist tirade. I realise now, I get it, why people were sometimes expressed really low patience with me when I started to say creationist things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know you when, Matthew. I'm glad I know you now. <laughs> oh, thank you, Brian. Thank you. <laughs> and me too. Yes, me too. You bring up a great point, which is, Clearly, these questions are not meant to actually be probative. He's not curious. He's not trying to fill in the gaps of his knowledge. He thinks he already has it figured out and that anyone that thinks otherwise is obviously motivated reasoning and is clearly just doesn't want to believe and is some dirty, rotten atheist because he hates God. And, and so far, these questions just belie his, his information that he has related to science and related to evolutionary uh, evolutionary theory and cosmology. So, you know, not only do I have a problem with his ignorance, I have a problem with his wielding his ignorance as some sort of weapon against people that have come to different conclusions that he has. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a difficult one. And having just admitted that I've come from that position, I don't know what the proper answer is because it is, it's waving his ignorance as a flag of celebration. And there's all kinds of wrong with doing that. And I find that as somebody who is atheist now, I have more knowledge now than I did 15 years ago when I was a full-blooded creationist. But I'm much more humble about the knowledge that I have. I recognize there's gaps in my knowledge. I recognize where the gaps are in my knowledge. And I actively look to try to increase my knowledge. Whereas when I was a creationist, I thought I had the answer. I was confident that the answer was God. And I was confident that God did it was satisfactory. And I wasn't interested in people trying to explain that being wrong because I was convinced that they were wrong. And I still don't know what the best tactic is to try to pull people out of that location. If I was to try to have a conversation with that guy face to face to try to explain these things, I'm not at all confident that the conversation would go well. I think it would degrade the same way that conversations degrade when I try to have them as a young earth creationist. And I, I find that slightly frustrating that in 15 years, I still haven't got the answer. Maybe it's because it's an attitude issue. You know, maybe when people have this attitude of their their answer is set, maybe that's what the problem is. As soon as people say, this is the answer and I'm not moving from this answer, that's when the problem set in. 
Yeah, I would agree. You're not having a conversation at that point. You're just giving dueling press conferences. Right. So let's move on. Question seven. So we're in the final furlong. We're moving towards the end. Seven. Natural selection requires that something be alive and reproducing for it to op- for, for natural selection to operate. It cannot be alive and reproducing without a huge amount of DNA operating the life functions inside the cell. So what came first? The code in the DNA or the organism that depends on it for life? How can natural selection produce something that is a prerequisite for natural selection to operate? So I actually find this question is a bit of a fun question. It's slightly poorly phrased, but I think we can correct the poor phrasing around some of it, like the whole the throwing natural selection in there, I think, pollutes the question somewhat and takes out of what is generally actually, I think, an interesting question. You know, it's kind of a chicken and egg, what came first kind of thing. And I know that there are scientific questions to it, but I think for somebody who's just got a loose understanding of these kinds of things, which is the average layperson, let's be honest. I think there's something interesting here that we can impact. And so I think we can actually enjoy this question and unpack something interesting about that. Prove me wrong. Brian, do you want to go first? Uh, Yes, I'd be happy to weigh in on this. My first reaction to this question is there is actually a kernel of interesting topic here, but I think it's painted incorrectly because it assumes that natural, quote unquote, selection is the only thing that's at play here, right? I mean, there's artificial selection and there's environmental factors that may cause for selection pressure that isn't necessarily happening on a DNA reproductive evolutionary scale. Think about a room that's 110 degrees and you put ice and liquid water in that room. Well, you're not going to have ice for very much longer because of the conditions. It's so warm, it will melt into regular water. So the physical nature of the world that caused assemblage of certain chemicals into things that became DNA which eventually found their way into cells and were then passed on in a genetic fashion through natural selection. There's a lot of other pressures for selection that are happening before that reproductive cycle. So I would say that, yeah, obviously natural selection isn't happening on something that's not in a Darwinian evolutionary reproductive cycle, but there are still selection pressures that happen before then to get us to that point. If I understand the current state of laboratory biology, We have some, uh, I'm I'm trading carefully here, Brian, because I don't know enough about this and I'm hoping you do. But if if I understand the current state of laboratory work, we've done quite a good job of isolating what chemical compositions can compose structures that become self-replicating. And so in some sense, if I understand the, the landscape correctly, we can perform self-assembly, not just in the sense of living organisms, right? But we can cause self-assembly to happen from more basic components in the lab without necessarily appealing to, oh, look, there's natural selection and it needs natural selection to get started or whatever. Um, so this sort of self-assembly of molecules and the, the repetition of self-assembly is something that we understand pretty well. Is that true or false? Yeah, that's right. And, and again, it's, it's happening a landscape that's um, physical science. It's not reproductive at that point, right? You're still talking about chemicals and, uh, and biochemical 
uh, activity. You're not talking about reproductive cycle. And um, I'd like to pull the natural selection bit out of this because I think it, because natural selection is a process as opposed to a thing. And I'm interested in the bit about the cell and DNA operating within a cell. And then can a cell reproduce if that cell hasn't already got DNA in it? Is what's is that a valid question? Um, and this probably goes down to the level of technical biological knowledge that I don't quite have. But my gut tells me that cells need to have DNA in them in order to be a cell. Is that, is that correct? Roughly, yes. And again, you know, the, the how cells first formed is part of, you know, this frontier of abiogenesis, which is being, um, you know, explored as we speak. Right. But there are theories about how um, viruses and other similar type of entities, you know, were able to gather into lipid molecules. And that's how, you know, the viral reproduction happened. And then cells started forming and then they started separating and reproducing, uh, by, you know, via single cell uh, activity. So, you know, it's, it's, again, something that's not 100% understood right now, but we have the building blocks to create theories that are, uh, and hypotheses that are testable. So, again, it's something that's happening at a, at a phase before natural reselection, again, quote unquote, as he's using it, is able to take place. So he's just taking the term and applying it to a period of time where either you need a different term for it, but similar principles are at play. But there was clearly something that was a little bit more primitive before we had a cell with long strands of DNA inside it. Right. That's correct. Yeah. In much the same way as you know, we didn't, the, the first car wasn't a supercar. Yeah. The first car was something that was pretty rudimentary. And some people might not even recognize them as cars today. But you know, look at the supercars that we've got now. Exactly. I think, I think one of the interesting frontiers for research here is I, I thought one of the working theories was, you know, mitochondria might have been their own separate organism that then somehow, again, found its way into an environment where it's now got a superstructure, you know, where it was gaining a, an advantage and could reproduce itself because it was in now inside of a cell. And the cell provided it with, with resources and nutrients and, and protection that it didn't have outside. And that's how that particular lineage uh, came forward. You know, I, I don't think that's established per se but i'm pretty sure that's one of the working models okay cool that sounds interesting actually so things actually migrated as part of you know the, the early proto-life before we got the stable system that we've got now exactly and i guess that's probably how we should think about it anyway you know things would be messy until or rather let's start again things are always messy until they find something that stabilizes them and now that we've got something stable, it's now hard for us to imagine how it might have been unstable. Exactly. I was reading an article. Um, all of our listeners, I think, unless you're, you know, unless you're living under a rock, are aware that a lot happened on Mars in February. The Chinese Space Agency, the European Space Agency, and uh, NASA all ended up with projects either in orbit or on the ground on Mars. Perseverance, the 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 new NASA rover in Giselle Crater. I think it's been uh, renamed Octavia Butler Crater. Uh, she's, a, she's a science fiction author. Uh, if you haven't read her, probably you should. But at any rate, Perseverance is looking for the markers of ancient life on Mars. One of the interesting things about that 
is that we have sort of had to expand exactly what we think life might look like in order to cast a broad enough net to be able to recognize if there was something like life on Mars that didn't exactly mirror what we see here on Earth. There's enough talk about this, that, that we even think we have some understanding of, of what other kinds of evolution could look like. Now, I think certainly we're looking for organic molecules. We're not so tied to our version of life that we can't think outside the box to some extent and start looking for things that could look like life that isn't exactly us at a cellular level on other planets. I'm making no claim whatsoever about what perseverance will find if it finds anything. But people that think very deeply about this aren't necessarily tied to life looking exactly like us. And I think that's an, an interesting thought experiment. We don't necessarily anticipate that if we were to discover some kind of life somewhere else, it would get the business of living done exactly like we do. Because if perseverance finds something, it may shake up everything that we think of as how life began and what natural selection looks like, all of that sort of thing. Very interesting. And to go back to the answer, the question that was asked in this question seven, what came first, the code in the DNA or the organism that depends on it? Well, the organism by definition is multicellular, so it has to be the code in the DNA. Although as a coder, I object, continue object, and probably always will object to DNA and code being used uh, to describe each other. Because I Amen. don't, I don't like that <laughs> that comparison. I don't think it's accurate, but you know, on, on a crude level, I kind of see how it's, it sort of works. But I think it is also rather misleading. But let's just stick with it for the moment. The, whatever it is, it's in the DNA came first, and it came from something simpler. And organisms, because they're multicellular, came afterwards. Yeah, it's 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 an equivocation, right? I mean, DNA is a physical structure and it uses it codes as a verb. It isn't a code like a message in a bottle from somewhere else. Oh, that's very is well very put. Nicely Thank said. you, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. That's very, awesome. Very clearly put. Question eight. Number eight. If scientists almost totally accept that a signal from outer space containing information that can be interpreted as a string of prime numbers would be proof of extraterrestrial intelligence. Would, why would they not accept that the information coding in the nucleus of the simplest cells, DNA, which is equivalent to the information in a full set of Encyclopedia Britannica, was the result of intelligence? So this is expanding out the DNA thing and it's stretching it painfully to the point of incredulity i understand why he's gone to this point because it's a typical creationist talking point it doesn't work <laughs> i'm almost too <laughs> bored to, to try and explain why it doesn't work i'm hoping that our answer to question seven gives an indication as to why this doesn't work i have a feeling that the original author of these questions 
had recently watched the movie Contact before posing this question. <laughs> I don't know. If you, you guys seen that that movie? Yes. The Carl Sagan story. Yes. What a great, it's a great, great movie. And you know, obviously, the you know the 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 contact was by extraterrestrial sending down you know a, a coded mathematical message uh, in a in a in a vibration noise or something like that. So I think he he felt the need to uh, to get you know uh, an explanation based on the movie he just saw the other day. Uh, look, contact, great movie. Loved the loved the final scene, right? The, in the pod yeah. and the pod drop. That's it's fantastic. Watch contact. Mm-hmm. My only response to this whole thing is if you think that prime numbers and chemistry are the same, I just want to see your glass filled with prime numbers. <laughs> yes. It's a poor analogy, is what I'm saying. And I don't yeah, I don't I don't have time for <laughs> Yeah, um, the assumption behind this question is that DNA emerged fully formed as it is now. And as we've already explained in the answer to question seven, that isn't how it happened. Therefore, the basic assumption behind this question is so faulty, the question has lost all sense of meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And and if by some chance from outer space, we did get some sort of message of a string of prime numbers, we would then need to investigate what exactly it is we were receiving to figure out what was on the other side of it, uh, if anything intelligent. So... You know, it's not some sort of fait accompli that, you know, the whatever stimuli you experience in the world is the necessary uh, purposeful message from another intelligent being. Right. And we do get uh, this is in the news again, just in the last few weeks. We do get regular signals from using scare quotes here, outer space. Right. But uh, these these regular radio signals come from things like uh, binary stars and other uh, uh, other beacons uh, in deep space that we do have to separate from, uh, you know, some kind of intelligent signal. Now, generally, the separation has been pretty easy. But I just want to say, Brian, that I think you're exactly right that just because we got a message that looked intelligent wouldn't mean that it was intelligent. Although prime numbers might, you know, um, uh, one, two, three, five, seven, uh, 13, 17, you know, I mean, (laughs) we we might have a a case for what would constitute intelligent at some point, but um, we would, it, it wouldn't be as simple as, oh, somehow we got this string of prime numbers, therefore intelligence did it. Exactly. Yes, quite. And I think the other thing that's fun to play around with is we now have quite a few space probes, quite a few radio telescopes that are scanning the skies around us and receiving signals, signals which make us want to look twice, which always turn out to be natural. There was the infamous wow signal of goodness knows how many decades ago now there was that star crumbs this was again almost 10 years ago now i think uh, and i can't even remember the name of the star a star which dimmed by an enormous amount something like 40 percent and normally with normal planetary transit from a star the dipping is in the region of one to two percent so this star dipped in brightness far far greater than was possible and there was lots and lots of speculation about what that might mean and Dyson spheres 
came out as a suggestion for what might cause a star from our perspective to dim that much. In the end, they decided it was most likely a dust cloud. But, you know, again, the, the answer is still not fully known because we've not seen a repetition. So we've not been able to to duplicate any kind of uh, results on that. But the odd things happen when you're looking. And by sheer amount of data that we're looking at, there are going to be in that natural data things that look odd because it's just straight there in the mathematics. So where I'm getting to is it is not impossible that in amongst all the observations that we do, that by some quirk of naturalness, we get a short sequence of prime numbers in some data somewhere that is entirely naturally explained. I would love to see that happen, and I would love to see the circles and loops that scientists would dance in in trying to work out what's going on. But it, it can happen. Obviously, the longer the sequence is, the less likely it is to be natural. But it could happen. It's there in the mass. And the the current head of um, the astronomy department at Harvard has just released a book. Uh, he thinks that that... Um, that wandering asteroid that came through uh, last oh, year. Oh, 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 oh. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, can't but he has written a book and uh, I haven't read the whole book. I, I have it right here on my device. Um, he actually thinks uh, it's a Hawaiian name uh, uh, that, that that wanderer um, is, is not only from interstellar space, but that it does bear the marks of intelligent design. Now, I'm not going to defend the position one way or the other. I have, I have no idea. No idea. Um, Just saying it. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I, I, might even, I might even be a little farther right than, than skeptical. I, I, might, I might even be cynical. Um, for the very reason that you gave, Matthew, I, I hope that I'm not cynical. I, I hope that I am only highly skeptical. But in, in the entire history of human civilization, we, we as, as individuals have only been as far as, as here to the moon. And there are all sorts of scale experiments that you can play. Uh, it's about the distance of a palm leaf uh, on the Pacific Ocean, right? In terms of how far we've been versus even the, the width of our galaxy, right? So Yeah, the moon's, what, two and a half light seconds away? Right, 240,000 miles. Yeah. And and so a round-trip communication, about two and a half seconds, right, uh, about two and a half seconds. And, and so my point is just uh, one of agreement that uh, we haven't been very far, right? Um, and so to make the claim that this is uh, somehow intelligent life that sent this thing, well, it's a big, it's a big claim. And it may be that the claim is just noise. And we should have considered it as noise. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's an overclaim. So I, I don't know. But on that point, though, I just like to say that these ideas, they're fun to play with. It's fun to play with the idea that to Umwa Umwa 
was something from an intelligent civilization that has possibly even died out now and it might have been the last dying gasp of this civilization sending something out in the hope that somebody might find it that's a fun answer to play around with it's a fun idea to consider but let's not be so tied to fun ideas that we cease to be able to see the truth the last Adam and Eve from that uh, from that alien civilization were on that rock, and uh, and we didn't help them. They're they're going. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's my version of fun. My version of fun always ends always ends in something dark. It's interesting. To be honest, I, I would I would find it much more impressive if we received an intelligent asteroid sent light years away than I would be uh, about the Bible being a message. <laughs> the asteroid seems much more impressive. Oh, it really does. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Yes, absolutely. But I would love it to be confirmed. I don't want the speculation without knowing the full answer because that asteroid whose name I can never say the same twice, you know, that's <laughs> come and gone. You know, we've lost yep. our chance to do anything with it. If only we'd had 12 months of advance notice, we could have probably planned something to get much, much closer look at it. And unfortunately, all we saw were its taillights disappearing uh, over the horizon. And that's highly, highly disappointing. Some Any kind of confirmable source from any form of intelligence. You, know, you said you'd be excited about an intelligent asteroid driving. I said, I'd be that excited over a signal. You know, I don't even need something physical or tangible to crash land on our planet or even to orbit around it or even to pass through. I just need a signal that we can confirm to be from an intelligent source to arrive at us. That would, it really would, it would, I would explode with excitement. I really genuinely would. It would be messy. Agree, agree. That book, by the way, is Extraterrestrial, the First Sign of Intelligent Life if anyone wants to go off and pick up a copy. Okay, I'm going to get umbrage at that title. First sign of intelligent life. Well, there isn't any signs of intelligent life here already. I guess you just sort of have to feel that way if you're the head of the astronomy department at Harvard. Right. (laughs) 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 Nearly there. Question nine. Number nine. What if God is real, as described in the Bible? And you have to stand before him and give an account for your life. Do you have a list of reasons already for why you never accepted it? Under close scrutiny, will those reasons betray the fact that you don't want to believe and will stick with anything that sounds good rather than look too closely? So here we are. The atheist has been strawmanned and pilloried unfairly yet again. Yeah, this uh, yeah, th- this question didn't come veiled or hidden underneath a basket. This is this was you know this was wide open, open hand slap across the face. <laughs> I guess all I can say, and and I will absolutely leave it here uh, with quite a short answer this time around, is if you can listen to this podcast and you've heard each of us speak, speaking only for myself, if you think that after the answers I have given, I have not made my best effort to look at the evidence 
and to decide where the evidence most likely falls. And if you think that evidence is somehow uh, indefensible and that I don't have the, the right to my skepticism as a result of the answers I've given here, then two things. You have a right to your opinion. And I doubt we can have an intelligent conversation. I would echo those, those sentiments, Andrew. My short answers are, do I have a list of reasons why I never accepted him? Yep. Under close scrutiny, will those reasons betray the fact I don't want to believe? Nope. <laughs> those are my answers because, you know, this question just, it, talk about wanting to ascribe onto me motivations and attitudes that this guy has no idea what they are, where I've been, what I know, what I've done. I mean, it, it, I mean, are you, are you really trying to get me to question where I sit? in this world with my, you know, how I choose to live and think, or are you just trying to make yourself feel better that people that have come to different conclusions must be faulty, must be nefarious, must have bad intentions that nobody could come to a conclusion different than yours that didn't have ulterior motives. I mean, this just reeks of being so insecure in where you sit Mm -hmm. in the, into the conclusions you've come to that, you know, trying to put aside, you know, how offensive it is, you know, talk about just not at all being interested in what someone else's experience and uh, how they came to believe what they believe is. Yeah, the disappointment with question nine is the first half is an okay question. You know, if that God described is real, do I have a list of reasons? Yeah, I'm very happy to answer that question. I'm very happy to engage with that conversation as intended. I'm very happy to have a back and forth over that kind of thing and to, to spitball various ideas around and to, to justify my reasons in, on an intellectual basis in a way that is not antagonistic. The second half of that question completely destroys my desire to engage with integrity with the first half because it has second-guessed my motives, it has second-guessed how I feel, and has completely missed everything about my attitude in this. And the sad truth is, the second half of this question is sometimes what I get from internet Christians today. It is a very poor reflection on some of the attitudes that I do get from Christians as somebody who is no longer a Christian. And it is very, very disappointing. And it is completely demotivating when it comes to trying to have rational dialogue with Christians, because it just completely, it it kills my mood. It makes me cross. And I know that not every Christian is like that. And I know that there will be Christians who will roll their eyes that another Christian has done this again. But I just want to say to the Christian community, We face this attitude an awful lot. Please have a quiet word with your fellow Christians and get them to stop this second guessing of our motives. Because it is the second guessing, in my experience, that is one of the things that single-handedly destroys the opportunity for dialogue between Christians and atheists. You've got to get your brethren to stop doing that. Because I would have loved to have given this question a really genuine answer to the first half, but the second half has completely destroyed my desire to do that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, and, and if, if by chance I found myself in front of this being, uh, I think the, the question I'd want to ask is what I'm trying to do in living my life is I'm trying to make the best decisions that I can. I'm trying to use my brain effectively to keep myself alive and to maximize the life that I have. And part of that equation is using things like skepticism, using things like epistemic humility, not jumping to conclusions, following the evidence where it leads, and being wary of you know putting my stake in the ground too quickly such that I actually miss what's real because I've overstepped and I've jumped too far ahead and I've uh, had conclusions that were improper. So what I would want to know from the deity is, why would those methods that I use to successfully navigate life, why would those tool tools be so opposite to finding you? I couldn't find you using the best tools. Why did you make it so that you, the most important thing I could probably learn about, was hidden to the best practices that I can use as a human being with a brain? Amen. Well done for having more grace than me, Brian. You're welcome back. <laughs> Right, shall we do the final one? Question 10. And as I hinted at before, this is a slight, this is a bit of a rerun of question 10 from Braxton Hunter's 10 questions about would I worship God if God revealed himself? This question goes on a bit. So please bear with us while you listen to the whole of question 10. There's a lot of it. And I'll see you on the other side. Number 10. If I answered all your objections to your satisfaction, would you submit your life to Jesus or recognize God as your creator? If you say no, you must acknowledge that your objections are just a smokescreen. Your real problem is that you don't want to submit or be accountable to rules given by creator God. You don't have to have every answer to everything. I don't know everything about this video camera but I'm able to use it and get benefits from it. Just need to accept that God created you and you need Jesus to make it into heaven as your starting point. You can be forgiven for anything you've done and you are not expected to be instantly perfect or even eventually perfect. Just accept Jesus and try to follow him. It's okay if you say, God may be real, but I don't like him. You would say that uh, utterly destroying thousands of people in the blink of an eye is a horrendous act of mass murder, wouldn't you? But you cheered when Luke Skywalker did just that by destroying the Death Star and crew in the first Star Wars movie. Don't assume that God was a bad guy when he did things like that in the Old Testament. Look into it for yourself. As you get to know him through the Bible, you will come to see that God loves you and does not intend for you to perish. You will live forever. The question is, will you enjoy the part of your life that happens after you die? I think the first bit that I would, I'm just going to take out the first sentence on this one. If he was able to answer all of my objections to my satisfaction, would I submit to Jesus? I guess what I need to define first is what to my satisfaction would mean. And to my satisfaction would mean that God is 
A exists and B is the creator God of everything, that Jesus was him on earth and that it is genuinely a gospel of love and that the things that I read in the Bible that are objectionable, and let's pick the easy ones, you know, mauling children with a bear, you know, those kinds of things are all utter myth and are created by people because people are subperfect. Okay, I'm getting there, but I now have a really, really serious problem. And I think this is a sticking point, and I don't know if this could ever be done to my satisfaction. The fall of man. How did a perfect creator create a creation that he loves, that is so imperfect, and he willed it to be so imperfect? Because if he didn't will it to be imperfect, then it happened outside of his control, and that is not to my satisfaction. So I don't know how that conundrum gets answered. So I think that for me is the stopping point, which makes it impossible for the Christian God to be explained to my satisfaction. Maybe it's possible. I can't imagine it. So we already have an insurmountable hurdle at that point. But let's pretend that it gets answered to my satisfaction, then yes, I can imagine a situation where Jesus, to my satisfaction, is somebody worthy of worship who I would want to worship. But at this point in time, with the knowledge that I have, with the imagination that I have, it is actually impossible for me to get to that point. And that probably makes the rest of this question ignorable from, for me. Brian, I have a canned response here, so I am going to let you go, if you don't mind. If you're going to say the same thing I do, I don't want to trample on it. So I want to give you right a a first refusal. My first reaction to the question is, why is it that I have to deal with this guy answering my objections to my satisfaction? Hmm. Why can't the deity step forward and reveal himself? and deal with my objections and my questions in my uh, inquiries. I don't understand why he has to send these, you know, imperfect, poor messengers to get his message across. It, it, it completely belies the fact that he's supposedly perfect and omnipotent and omniscient. If that were the case, he would know that this guy on YouTube is not the source <laughs> of my objections being removed. <laughs> I, I need a better source. I need the source, the direct source. So, you know, in short, I don't see how this guy can fit the bill. I would appreciate him spending time trying to remove objections, but he can't remove the number one objection, which is where's the deity? Why is he hiding? Why can't he show up to answer my objections? So that's how I would deal with the first half of the question. And the second half of the question actually uh, it dovetails well with um, this most recent series that we did on Skeptic and Seekers, which is, would you worship if you knew for sure that God was real? And, you know, the, the answer to that question, as I proffered in the, in the show, is I probably would, but I need to know the details. What does it mean for me to submit my life to Jesus? I might be willing to do things that are in that vein, if they match to what I'm getting out of it on the other side and what the downsides of me doing so are. So I need a lot more details, but obviously if the deity revealed itself, I would, I would accept, I would recognize God as my creator. If he were able to demonstrate that he did in fact create me. 
And then the question becomes, what is it exactly you're asking of me and why and what for? And given that information, I'd then be able to say whether or not I'd be willing to do it. You know, if you if the being wants me to torture every human being that I love because he's bored, well, that doesn't sound like a good uh, uh, <laughs> equation. Uh, so I don't think I would do those things. If he wants me to go to church once a week and in response, you know, I get 72 virgins. Well, yeah, maybe that's something I would consider. So so basically the devil's in the details and I don't see a lot of details here. And if the deity is not going to show up, then I, I think we've got a non-starter here. I'm glad you went first because my answer is, is very similar. We, the, the listeners, sorry, folks, I don't have a different answer this time. This kind of question, I, I try to, I try to have something to new, something new to say every time I hear a question. I try, I try to have a, a unique kind of response that furthers the conversation. I'm sorry, I don't have it this time. This, this is my answer, and you've, and you've heard it before. Brian, I agree with you. This guy can't. There are questions I have that he can't answer. And, and here they are. If there is a God, he would have to prove to me that he can live forever. That's not something a human can do. He would have to prove to me that he has the capacity to rightly judge every human being without a mistake, to separate the sheep and the goats. And then after he proved that he could do that, he would have to prove to me that he has the right to do it. And if he could get that done, I would want to know, does he maintain an eternal torture chamber for those that hate him or, or don't love him or don't follow him or praise everyone, I don't care, does he or does he not have an eternal torture chamber? Uh, there are, uh, you know, in heaven, am I going to be required to worship him a la uh, the typical view of the book of Revelation, or will there be more freedom in heaven? These are the kinds of questions that human beings can't answer, and I think it is monumentally arrogant for any Christian to suppose that they can study long enough, that they can think hard enough, that they can work with me at any level to sufficiently answer those questions. And furthermore, if your God is more powerful than I am, he can fool me. He can simply trick me into believing that the answer to all my questions is yes or no, whichever is the most advantageous, whichever aligns the best, to convince me that he is the God of the Bible. And he still would not necessarily be the God of the Bible. So what I worship, I am not a hard atheist. I am not trying to convince anyone listening that there is not a God. But like Isaac Asimov, I so strongly suspect that there's not a God that it's no longer worth my time to investigate. But if there were a God and he came around and he introduced himself and he said, hey, Andrew, here are the answers to all of your questions. And they are as compatible with good as you can possibly imagine. I am as good a God as you could want. You still could not remove the possibility that he's not, and I am deceived because he is more powerful than me. And before you submit to a God, listener, whoever you are. You should think about that deeply because I guarantee you that with enough time, you are as fallible as I am 
even if you're smarter than me. Because the God you believe in is smarter than you. I don't care. I don't care how many times you've said it. That's a, that's a great answer. Well done. I feel Thank like I've heard that sermon before. I'm, <laughs> look, I, I apologized ahead of time. I, um, I don't have a different answer. I've faced this question for 15 years. I don't I don't have a different answer. I'm going to give a slightly different take to this while still endorsing and agreeing with both of your answers. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was that I said when I had my hour and a half long conversation with David over on Skeptics and Seekers on this thing. If I remember, I'll put a link to it in the notes, but go over to Skeptics and Seekers, listen to our answers, dear listeners. It expands on this question, but it's done in a much different frame. We haven't arrived at the question wound up (laughs) already. But I'm going to approach this question from a slightly different answer. If you've been listening to this podcast for more than a couple of episodes, we'll know that I'm a parent and I'm the parent of a teenager. Now, for a bit of background, when my teenager was a lot younger, we used to play Xbox games together, usually because she couldn't do the whole game on her own. So it became a daddy daughter time together. And one of the things we used to play an awful lot of was the Lego games of various they They're good fun if you haven't played Lego games. They, they work for us anyway. And we used to play them together. And we used to have this chant whenever we complete a record. We used to chant together, we're the greatest. And then we'd high five each other and laugh and giggle. And because my daughter was of that age, everything that I did with her was by definition awesome. My jokes were funny. And daddy genuinely was daddy cool. Now, any of our listeners who are parents will know that that stops when your children become teenagers. I try to remind my daughter that we had this wonderful relationship where I was Mr. Awesome, I was Mr. Cool, and she practically worshipped everything that I said and did. And she looks at me and she tuts and she rolls her eyes as though I am the single least cool and interesting person in the entire universe because that's what teenagers do. But you know what? I have a better relationship with my daughter now than I did 10 years ago in that time when all she did was worship and laugh because we have a nuanced relationship. We have a detailed relationship. We have a relationship which includes back and forth. We have a relationship where she is free to challenge me if she doesn't like what I've said what I've done because she knows that that challenge doesn't come with painful consequences she knows she can have a dialogue with me she knows that we can have conversations where we don't necessarily agree on what the answer is and we can try and convince the other of which is right and we have really interesting and informative conversations and there'll even be times if we're watching a quiz on tv and it might be something to do with the periodic table and because she's doing it in chemistry a level and i have forgotten everything past iron and gold i'll ask her and say this is a question for you and she'll get more of the answers right than i will great that's wonderful i'd much rather have the relationship with my teenage daughter that i have now than the one that i did 10 years ago so i put it to you that a god that wants us and desires us and demands us to worship it and do nothing else 
is a God that's incapable of having an adult relationship with me. And a God that truly is that perfect God that loves me would not ask that of me either and would welcome the challenge and would welcome the, the pushback and would welcome actual adult, grown-up, mature relationships. That is my answer this time. Bravo. That was, that was really, really an excellent, excellent analogy. Bravo. Thank you. I fall to the parent-child analogy an awful lot because I was brought up on God being the perfect parent. And I think the, now that I am a parent and I'm far from a perfect parent, let's just get out there, out there. <laughs> I enjoy the imperfections of parenthood so much. And I recognize that I am very different to the God parent that I was brought up on. And not only do I recognize that difference, I celebrate that difference because I don't want to be the parent God that I was brought up on. I don't want to be like that God. I don't see that God as something to aspire to. You know, to that, I, I, I want to ask in all seriousness, we, we've talked about hiddenness on this show. It's been talked about over on Skeptics and Seekers. I have talked about it on other podcasts. I just want to ask seriously, does anyone listening think, especially if you're a Christian worshiping a God, do you really think that we would be better parents by hiding more? I think the silence answers that one. Where am I going to cut it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was afraid we all cut out. I was like, what happened there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was not intended point. as a drop the mic moment. But, uh, <laughs> um, Maybe I'll have to put that sound effect in now. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, it's a, it's a great point because, you know, Christians will point to look at the trees, the Bible. He sent Jesus where, you know, all these scientific objections, you know, where how could all this beautiful life exist you know, from just evolution or just natural processes? Those are all just subpar revelations compared to just showing up and, and holding out your hand and having a direct conversation with you. And if you go to the, well, he couldn't do that because either he can't or he can't achieve other ends if he did that, then you're, you're, you've now pivoted away from not only an, an omnipotent God, but a pretty he's now pretty weak. If he can't even do the same thing that a human parent can't do or a human chimpanzee parent can do. I mean, you, right. you've really put him into a box of being pretty, pretty uh, impoverished when it comes to power. If he can't show up and introduce himself because of some other downstream effect that, that he doesn't want. Yeah. We have this beautiful old hardwood tree out in our backyard. Uh, and, and I have older stepdaughters. They're, they're in their 20s and 30s, respectively. But my 20-month-old my daughter, she goes outside and she says, Daddy, tree and she'll point to things like uh like she's got balls that she likes to kick in the backyard she'll walk over and she'll count them and she'll kick one to me and we kick it around the backyard here's the thing that i'm getting to she likes that old hardwood tree she loves when i swing her in her swing 
from that tree. Bring your God around. I think we'd all like to meet him. Yes, I would much rather a God that was interactive. That's what I begged for as part of my deconversion. Begged in tears sometimes, multiple times, for a God that wasn't hidden, for a God that was the parent that I wanted to be. I didn't get it. You know, and the, the question I ask to Christians when they refer to the mystery of God is, at what point is it good enough to stop asking when you've not had any response? And for me, that limit got reached. Yeah. Yep, indeed. Brian, we, we do this with every guest on Still Unbelievable. Matthew, we almost let him get away. Do you have a favorite Bible character? Who are they and why? Nice. Okay, so I do know this. I know that this is a question of yours, and I'm glad that I get to be part of the, uh, the answer set. So I do have a favorite character, and it is absolutely Jonah, because when I was young, and even now, I was a huge fan of uh, marine biology, and whales in particular were my favorite. And when I was a kid, it was Jonah and the whale, not Jonah and the big fish. So the mm. fact that Jonah got to see a whale up close and actually lived in its belly for a few days and came back out to tell the tale, Jonah, hands down, is my favorite Bible character. Oh, it's interesting. Uh, Matthew, answer. I'm sure we have not had Jonah. No, we've not had Jonah. So, so yeah, it's, please. It's interesting Feel free to... that you focus on Jonah's fishy experience and not the fact that his fishy experience was uh, used to force a change of heart onto him. Yeah, no, exactly. When I was a kid, I was the, the part of the story that interested me was not the horrible, torturous punishment. <laughs> that was the that was the part of the story. You have heard the skeptics' view here on Still Unbelievable. In fact, three skeptics' views. I sincerely hope that our answers were worthy of the questions to you. If they were, um, drop us a line and tell us what you liked. If they weren't, drop us a line and tell us what you did not like. Brian, you're over on the Skeptics and Seekers boards pretty often, right? That would be the best place if you wanted to reach out and talk to me about topics such as these. I am Brian with a Y. Make sure you don't confuse me with Brian with an I, who is a wonderful chap, but is a got a, a different experience and positions than I do, but interact with him too. But I am Brian with a Y if you actually want to talk to me about this stuff. I think that's uh, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Is that the right address? Yes, that is correct. Okay. And please reach out to us as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us, if you'd like to appear on a show, if you'd like to uh, agree or disagree or simply advise us, please send us an email. That email is reasonpress at gmail.com. And there will be in the show notes a link so that you can drop us an audio message. We'd love to hear from you. It works essentially like voicemail. If you are so inclined, drop us an audio message. Fellas, I thoroughly enjoyed this. And I thank you. Yes, thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.
Oh, 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 oh,